Welcome to Pedagog, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, Laura Hartman Vialta talks about transitioning from part time to full time faculty, contingent labor, Spanish literature, contemplative pedagogy, and mindfulness in first year writing. Laura Hartman Vialta is a feminist Latina scholar who has been teaching first year writing since 2006. The themes of her composition classes range from security, gender, text, to ethnographic explorations of discourse communities. Hartman Vialta enjoys incorporating archival explorations, mindfulness, and visual rhetoric into her writing classroom. Her scholarship focuses on foreign women's involvement in the Spanish Civil War, and she frequently writes about the intersection between women's lives, visual culture, human rights, and war. Her publications include the recently published Engaged Humanity short piece, How I Talk About Activism Without Talking About Activism. Hartman Vialta earned her PhD in English Literature from Northeastern University. Currently, she is a lecturer in the University Writing Program at Johns Hopkins University. Laura, thanks so much for joining us. You're transitioning this semester between institutions from Georgetown to Johns Hopkins and from part-time role to full-time faculty position. What do you think this transition will allow you to do as an instructor and scholar? Yeah, the transition from Georgetown to Johns Hopkins um, has really fulfilled a dream of mine. Um, I loved being at Georgetown and I've had a very positive experience as part-time faculty. Um, I can talk more about that, Uh, but there has just not been opportunities to get a full-time job at Georgetown. And so when this opportunity at Hopkins came up, I jumped at it because that was, has always been my long-term goal and a pretty broadly constructed long-term goal of being full-time in the academy. And so Hopkins is in this quite incredible sort of once in a lifetime place where it is revitalizing its undergraduate curriculum. And as part of that revitalization, it is putting writing at the center. Undergraduates are going to be taking something like five writing classes, um, some of them in the writing program, some of them being writing intensives within their major. And so Hopkins is putting in a bunch of resources to expand its writing program to meet the necessary demand um, that it's about to create. It's making first year writing required no matter what for its um, incoming class and that is a change too and so they're they just hired a bunch of people and I was one of them um and what what that means I mean one of the incredible things is the the Hopkins position is a 2-2 load which is the same as my part-time position at Georgetown there's a lot of shadow contingency factors that we can read into that Um, that at one university, it's a full-time position, at another, it's a part-time position. Um, And so one thing that I'm really excited about at Hopkins is the ability to collaborate across different units um, with the sense that I'm going to be there for multiple years. Because as a part-time contingent faculty member, even though I was 95% certain that I would be rehired every semester. That was always a question is, 
whether one would be rehired every semester because it was a semester by semester contract. Um, and so being full-time really allows me to spread my wings and invest um, and be able to talk about, you know, growing something in multiple semester terms rather than trying to conduct an experiment in one 15 week term and saying like, will I have the chance to repeat this? Will like, or was that so, did I get it so wrong that I'm not ever gonna try it again? Um, and really brings in a safety net for experimentation. Um, and for my scholarship, I mean, it's just, it's incredible um, because I'll be able to not engage in side hustles that have been expanding my resume and use that time for scholarship and research. Do you mind talking about the challenges of being contingent faculty and the precarious labor conditions associated with such a position? I'm also really interested in hearing what kinds of work you're doing with the MLA Committee on Contingent Labor in the profession. You know, as the one of the slogans goes, like, my teaching conditions are your learning conditions. And the fact of the matter is, is contingent faculty, whether they're part-time or full-time renewable, they're the majority of faculty in the United States nowadays. And Georgetown was no exception to that. Um, the majority of teaching faculty are part-time um, hired semester by semester, or they're um, full-time with one-year appointments or three-year appointments. I was fortunate um, at Georgetown to that there's also a, a union um, representing the part-time adjunct faculty and that had just finished its first collective bargaining agreement when I was hired. And so they had just gone through their first negotiations and I got involved in the union and, and mostly because I, I was excited to kind of learn what it meant to have a union and what the union could do for me individually and what I could do for our collective. Um, and that was an enlightening experience. Um, I had left my, my PhD program. Once I graduated, there were the beginnings of a union happening there. And so like I, I hadn't had much experience with that. Um, but being being precarious um, is really stressful. And that takes up a lot of mental time. Um, even though my the writing program director when I was at Georgetown, um, who's just stepped down, um, her name is Sherry Lincoln, and she's a giant in working class studies. She has a history of labor organizing. Um, and so she really ran the program with uh, collaboration and a lot of dignity, um, though the majority of her teaching faculty are part-timers um, making up the writing program. And that was a super positive experience. The stress comes from, um, even though one is sure, like, you feel it like, I know I'm going to get a contract. <laughs> um, one also knows that one is the most expendable piece um, in the institutional budget. And so any kind of nervousness, any kind of bumps in the road, like a pandemic, um, make one concerned. And then there's the, there is that stuck in placeness 
of being precarious that like it doesn't it feels like you're in a well and there's just no way out there's there's no avenue to full-time work um within the institution or at least that's how i felt um applying for positions and saying like that you're terrific but you don't have the experience that we're looking for um and so as a result part of precarity was always doing other work always 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 i wrote research reports for mit um on a one-off basis i substituted at an elite high school teaching writing and history um and i think a lot of contingent faculty members can identify with that is that yes they're teaching a lot and they're economizing and maximizing in all kinds of other ways too um to try to make ends meet in a very practical way thankfully i didn't have i don't have those financial pressures um as much as other people do because my husband is tenure track um and tenured now but there's also that sense of i have to find a way to get this experience that is holding me back and the trap of precarity you're always looking for a way for things to improve and almost all the time they will not like regardless of what effort one puts into it and that is so counter to a lot of the stories that we tell ourselves about success and about the meritocracy and it's really hard to wrap one's mind around i'm both existing in this space and i'm choosing to exist in it and i'm somewhat unhappy with it and there's nothing i can really do to improve it um one book that i i really recommend everyone in the academy to be reading is the adjunct underclass by herd childress um and it's got a very provocative subtitle and <laughs> something like how american colleges betrayed their students and faculty um and it's the subtitle's polemical the book is not as polemical um <laughs> and when i read that when i read that text it it really clarified that sense of like oh it's not me it's you <laughs> writ large um so the the work with clip um part of my part of my journey as a contingent faculty member was looking for avenues of leadership where i could um exert some kind of force and take some kind of control over um over my destiny that was part of my union work at georgetown um and then later volunteering to be on the committee um on contingent labor in the profession uh which is clip and so clips major responsibility is well there's two the first is organizing we have two standing panels at MLA and we want those panels to represent contingent labor's interests um to have contingent faculty on it um and they're they're guaranteed right so like part of our work is what are we going to present on what are we proposing how can we collect people to be on these panels um so if you are interested in participating <laughs> reach out to me um because we we are always looking for participants and it looks a lot like other 
putting together panels looks like, right? People reach out to their friends and I'm always looking to widen my circle of friends um, in that sense. The second responsibility is getting together to represent contingent labor's interests to the MLA executive board. And like, so this past year that looked like us as a committee writing a letter to MLA back in the spring saying that for MLA 2023, we want, our panels to be on Zoom. We want them to be virtual. And we are advocating for pedagogical-based panels to have either a hybrid or a virtual option um, or to be all virtual. The reason being is that there's a genuine concern among the committee, but also a little bit among MLA about the relevance of the Modern Language Association to contingent faculty who are teaching 5-5 or 6-6 loads, who are teaching all writing of all kinds and would have a more natural fit at four Cs, um, what does MLA offer this population? And so we're really thinking hard about the barriers of contingent faculty participation at MLA, aside from the fact that it is quite literature focused um, and that doesn't mean that contingent faculty are not teaching literature, um, but they're teaching it to perhaps different populations than are usually represented by faculty members at MLA, et cetera. Um, and so we think about the barriers being, you know, the expense involved in attending the conference and also the relevance, you know, how can we make this conference more relevant? Um, and so one of the things that we are thinking about long-term is advocating to the council, it's the acronym is CELJ, I think it's the Council of Editors of something in journals, um, to be open to start shifting their academic journals to publishing shorter pieces, right? Contingent faculty members have a difficult time producing even a 25 to 40 page academic journal article. What about a 10 page one? What about a cluster that is linking, you know, 18th century literature to pedagogy in the first year writing classroom? Um, you know, really asking journal editors to reconsider what it means to produce scholarship and what different forms that can come into. Um, I'm chairing the committee this the year after next. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and so I'm, I'm really looking forward to pushing my own agenda, which I'm going to keep close to my chest for now. Um, but that is thinking creatively about how to reward contingent faculty scholarship, how to recognize it, um, and how to get more contingent faculty who are interested in doing that sort of writing, um, how to get them published. Your educational background is in English and Spanish literature. Can you talk more about how this background and, and your expertise in the Spanish Civil War informs your approach to teaching first-year writing? Yeah, I love that question. Um, I am a modernist, uh, <laughs> very proud modernist, um, and I make my living by teaching writing. And these tend to be considered to be like quite far afield um, notions. And I do have to admit that I sometimes feel as if I have two selves 
there's the scholarship modernist self and there's this teaching experimental pedagogical self. Um, and one way that we're reconciling them is just this fall um, at the Modernist Studies Association, I'm presenting on a roundtable called Modernism and First Year Writing. And I'm really hoping that that becomes a feature of that conference because with Modernist Studies being no longer a hiring field, there were no ads that mentioned Modernist Studies last year. Um, some fields are going to have to start getting creative about how they keep themselves alive when folks aren't being hired in them. And one way to do that is by interrogating the connection between, you know, modernist literature, scholarship, et cetera, and first year writing. In my own scholarship, so yeah, I specialize in the Spanish Civil War, 1936 to 1939. Um, and within that, I study the British and American women writers who went to Spain and reported on the war. I also write about um, women photographers like Gerda Taro, who went to Spain and photographed the war. And how that creeps into my first year writing classroom is, uh, I think it's really fun. Um, <laughs> for one thing, like the these writers and these photographers the majority of them, and by majority, I mean like 95%. Yes, there were others who advocated the opposite, but a lot, almost all of them were advocating for foreign intervention in the Spanish Civil War. And so that brings them into this fascinating rhetorical position that I love to present to my students because here they are trying to make this event that is happening in Spain relevant and urgent to foreign audiences. And the fascinating thing is, how are they doing that? And they are not successful either. That is, I think students have a misconception about, you know, rhetoric being successful means that you achieve your end. Um, and that is not always the case and rhetoric can still be extraordinarily successful without making change happen in the world. Um, and that's a fascinating discussion to have with students. Um, so it creeps in by, for example, um, a, a real emphasis on visual culture in my first year writing classroom. We spend a lot of time looking at um, what one would call like committed photography the photography that is happening in war zones or humanitarian crises to talk about framing and to talk about how these images urge the viewer to do something. Um, one of my favorite lessons though, is that I have this award-winning collection of Spanish Civil War ephemera. It's like all behind me in boxes and it's pamphlets and, um, like handouts that would happen at like union meetings and all kinds of really sort of small things um, that would otherwise have been discarded that I've collected over the past 20 years. And I bring sort of like the best of these pieces to my classroom. Um, usually when students are learning about the rhetorical triangle and I present a little history of the Spanish Civil War, a little historical context and you know, students, particularly in the 21st century, particularly today, kind of understand in a way that is both sad and relevant, the 
fascism element, this like urgent political moment in which these pamphlets were produced. And then they analyze them. And it's really cool. I mean, the students are agog to like be holding something that's 80 years old and they're looking at it. And they're also incredibly surprised that they recognize tropes that they see every day in their own communication and their own engagement with the news. Um, and it connects, it gives them a sense of like communication continuity over the decades. And that these are questions that humans have been wrestling with for a long time. Um, and it also gives a sense to them that there are no pat answers. Um, and we talk about how these sorts of rhetorical appeals have evolved um, from the 1930s to today. So that those are some of the ways um, that the Spanish Civil War, like sometimes it's coming in in terms of here are pamphlets from Spain. Um, <laughs> let's talk about them um, as artifacts and you know what they're what what they're doing, um, but also just as a a background for um, activism, a background for intervention, for um, being aware of one's position in the world. Um, that's really motivated me and inspired me. Your teaching and research interests also include mindful-based approaches to teaching. Can you talk about what this looks like in your first year writing class and what scholarship has helped inform your practices? Yeah, I love this question. Um, and I, I'm going to be really curious to find out for myself how this contemplative writing approach translates into Johns Hopkins because it was it's evolved for me as a really sort of site-specific Georgetown practice. Um, I, in fall 2019, I participated in a dinner discussion group called Teach to Mission. And in that dinner discussion group for faculty and staff, there were about 11 of us from across the university. We, and a Jesuit, um, who I guess would be staff. Uh, <laughs> we read The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything by James Martin and discussed. And in that, um, dinner series, I was introduced to the Ignatian Examen, which is a cornerstone of Jesuit life. Jesuit priests um, are asked to practice the examen twice a day, uh, in the, once at noon and then once before bed. Um, one gives thanksgiving, one invites the Holy Spirit in, one reviews and recognizes failures, one asks for forgiveness, and one plans ahead to the future. And I found it to be very grounding. I found it to be very predictable. Um, and I discovered a, a book also written by a Jesuit um, called Reimagining the Ignatian Examine that takes this these steps and offers like 30 different versions of them um, focused on different you know themes of life or different sort of moments. And I said to myself like wouldn't it be fascinating if I used those first 10 minutes of class to, we always know that those first 10 to 15 minutes are a transition. Like what if I really marked it as a transition and I brought in more contemplation and I asked students to spend that time in reflection in different ways. And so in spring 2020, I started my experiment. Um, and I planned out different contemplative exercises, such as 
going through one of Thibodeau's versions of the examine. And I have to say that I edited his examine to not have mention of God, not have mention of the Holy Spirit, because for some individuals, that word is the word God can be quite loaded. Um, not for most, but for some. And I wanted it to seem like an accessible practice. And I didn't want it to feel like I was proselytizing something because I genuinely was not. Um, and so either doing an examine or like engaging in other sort of meditative exercises, like they would have a prompt on the board that said, you know, write a letter to your, your future self as, in, as a junior about something you want to remember that happened this week. Um, and like, you know, kind of experimental sort of things like that that allow them to slow down. Um, I had them listen to a sound bath for 10 minutes, which was their first experience with that. When Georgetown went online after spring break, the students found the contemplative aspect of our class to be one of the things that was really holding them together. And they were so touched and moved and appreciative of the sort of transition. Um, and I found that because I allowed for the sort of reflective space, they were a little bit more ready to work in the classroom. Like they had kind of had a time to shut out what was happening on the outside and have like a legit transition into our work and into the moment. And so I kept it going and I became super interested in what other people have written. Um, Yoga Minds, uh, Writing Bodies by Christy Wegner uh, is one of the, is, is like contemplative writing pedagogy um, is one of the books that I, I read through. And I realized that there is a growing strain in writing studies about embodied, like questioning like embodiedness and what that means for writing. And so another one that I looked into is Teaching with Tenderness Toward an Embodied Practice by Becky Thompson. This approach is starting, is evolving, not just for me, but for, I think, the field and pulling strands from compassionate pedagogy, racial justice, embodied, like gender studies with embodiment. And I think it's still trying to like find itself and experiment and stuff. And it's very exciting. Um, but on a practical way, I could really, for my students at Georgetown, because it is a Jesuit university, um, there is this driving force that we talk about called cura personalis, you know, care for the whole person. I started, that's how I introduced it to the students, is that I care about your whole self, you are bringing your whole self into the classroom, and you're writing with that whole being, and so let's pay attention to that for a few minutes and use that as a way to kind of get down the work and think about it. Thanks, Laura. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.